0: Hi everyone, thanks so much for joining us today during your lunch hour. My name is Mitch Borsma and I'm the Director of Operations here at the CIC and Executive Director of the Leonine Forum. We're going to go ahead and jump right in and our guest today needs little introduction to this audience, so I'll keep it brief. George Weigel is the Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center here in Washington, D.C., where he holds the William E. Simon Chair in Catholic Studies. He is the two-time bestselling author of two dozen books, including the two volumes of his internationally acclaimed biography of Pope St. John Paul II. Mr. Weigel is the recipient of many awards, none more prestigious, of course, than the 2013 John Paul II New Evangelization Award from the CIC. He's a longtime friend of the CIC and Leonine Forum, and he's here with us today to discuss his most recent book, the Next Pope, The Office of Peter and a Church in Mission. George, the floor is yours.
1: Thanks, Mitch. Uh, great to be with everybody. And thank you to the CIC for hosting this virtual discussion of The Next Pope, The Office of Peter and a Church in Mission. Let me say a few words uh, to begin the conversation uh, about this book. Uh, it's going to sound a bit odd for me to start this way, since this is happening on various social media platforms uh, as well as as YouTube. But the purpose of this book, the primary purpose of this book is to try to elevate the Catholic conversation about the future of the church, which is simply uh, over dominated these days by social media, snarkiness if if i can put it that way and i wanted to offer a view of the catholic future uh, that's not in sound bites it's not in a minimal or maximum number of characters but actually looks at the full array of of catholic life looks at the entire church through the prism of this unique institution called uh, the papacy Um, This is not, despite what the title might suggest to some, this is not a book handicapping a future papal horse race. There is no discussion of conclave politics in this book. There is no discussion of papal candidates in this book. Rather, what I've tried to do is take what I've learned from the three popes whom I have had the privilege of knowing personally, Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis, to take what I've learned from discussing their pontificates with them, writing about their pontificates, and applying that to the future. The book begins with some broad stroke discussions of of what a Pope of the future uh, should understand, in my view, about the Catholic situation uh, in the mid 20th, 21st century. Pope, for example, should understand that the grand strategy for the Catholic Church in the 21st century has been set by John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Francis, and that grand strategy is what we call the new evangelization. Uh, a church permanently in mission as Pope Francis has put it, a church in which everyone understands himself or herself to be a missionary disciple, a church in which every place is understood to be mission territory, including most particularly the United States of America. I then go on to explore what a Pope of the future and indeed the church of the future must understand about the cultural situation of the West in which the gospel has to be proclaimed. There, I think the key point is that if you look around the world church, uh, the places where Catholicism is vital, vibrant, growing, and having a real effect in society. And you know, let's name one of those places, which is the Catholic Information Center in Washington DC. Uh, that's because the, the gospel has been embraced in full, the teaching of the church has been embraced in full, and people are living as missionary disciples. On the other hand, where the church is moribund or even dying, That's because, it seems to me, uh, people are still trying to make the failed project of Catholic light work. Catholic light is really of interest to nobody, a Catholicism that really can't tell you what it believes and how it thinks we should live uh, in order to lead fulfilled, happy, Uh, consequential human lives is really not of much interest to anybody. And as I suggest in this book, continuing this uh, Coca-Cola metaphor I've been using for 20 years, Catholic light inevitably leads to Catholic zero. And the next pope needs to understand that. Then the book discusses the papacy in relationship to the bishops of the church, the priests of the church, the religious communities in the church, the lay apostolate in the church, the church and world affairs. uh, And and I have a brief chapter in the book on the reform uh, of the Vatican itself and what I believe uh, the popes of the future should do about that. So uh, it's not a heavy lift book is only 140 pages long. Uh, It's written, I hope, in a calm and reflective spirit. And I hope it offers all of us uh, something to think about uh, as we think about the Catholic future.
0: Thanks, George, for that. So, okay, for all of you listening, we wanna make this as interactive as possible for those of you watching live. So if you'd like to submit a question, please do so by entering it into the YouTube live chat box. We'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Uh, In the meantime, I will take the host's prerogative of asking the first question. So George, as you know, we around here are big fans of Pope Leo XIII and Pope St. Leo the Great, who are the two twin sources of inspiration for our Leonine Forum. What do you think the next Pope can learn from those two Leonine papacies guiding the church deeper into the 21st century?
1: So Leo the Thirteenth and John Paul II. Um, well, uh, in the next Pope, I give a very brief synopsis of the book I published a year ago, and that CIC hosted a, a book event for called "The Irony of Modern Catholic History." I believe that modern Catholic history begins with Leo the Thirteenth because it's Leo Thirteenth who says in many different ways over a lengthy pontificate of some 25 years, we are going to engage the modern world in order to convert the modern world. And one of the uh, initiatives he took uh, in order to do that work of conversion was his articulation of the foundational principles of Catholic social doctrine, which I know of particular interest to the Leonine Fellows Program uh, at the Catholic Information Center. John Paul II, in a sense, completes a century of that Leonine vision of a church engaged in mission uh, by giving an authoritative interpretation to the Second Vatican Council. An interpretation he formulated in collaboration with his longtime principal theological advisor, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who would of course be his successor as Pope Benedict XVI. And out of that authoritative interpretation of Vatican II, we get this grand strategy that I mentioned a moment ago called the new evangelization, of which I believe the Catholic Information Center uh, is, a, is a very uh, prominent uh, example uh, of the new evangelization in, in action uh, in the heart, if there is a heart, <laughs> in Washington, uh, D.C. Uh, so th- the line from Leo Thirteenth through the Second Vatican Council, through John Paul II and Benedict XVI, to this book is a is a pretty straight one, uh, and in a sense, the vision of the church of the future and the papacy of the future that I sketch in the next book is very much a Leonine vision uh, as
0: well as a Joanine Pauline vision. Thanks for that, George. Um, so, uh, Leo Thirteenth, JP the Great, and uh, Saint Leo the Great is our, our third inspiration, it seems apt. Uh, Saint Leo the Great, who of course uh, convinced Attila uh, to turn back and not sack Rome also seems like a fitting metaphor for today. Um, uh, next question here. So in the book, George, you speak of the priesthood and consecrated life as a kind of spiritual reactor core in the church. I thought that was a very apt description. If I can extend the metaphor a little further, what can the next pope do to prevent another spiritual Chernobyl, like the one we experienced during the long length of 2002? I think a lot of that has
1: been done already, at least in the United States. I mean, there has been great progress made here in the reform of seminaries, which was uh, crucial to uh, preventing another Chernobyl. There has been a lot of progress made in refining seminary recruitment, in refining ongoing priestly formation. I don't think those lessons have been learned sufficiently in the rest of the world church. And I think it would be important for a Pope of the future to suggest to churches in Europe, to local churches in Africa, Asia and Latin America, that there are things to be learned from the American experience of the reform of the priesthood. uh, That you, Latin Americans, Africans, Asians, Europeans might want to apply to your own uh, situations. Uh, The problems that came to light here problems, sins and grave crimes, wickedness and grave crimes that came to light here in 2002 are are not peculiar to the United States. Uh, We've learned to our horror that these problems exist, these grave sins and crimes exist throughout the world church. And therefore, what has been learned uh, from a local church that has perhaps done more to address this Chernobyl uh, than any other, the church in the United States has some applicability in other other situations. Fundamentally though, the abuse crisis as I have insisted since 2002 uh, is a crisis of fidelity. It's a crisis of fidelity to the truth about the priesthood which is that it is not a caste system. Uh, It is not a matter of a privileged position in society. It's a matter of a man being configured uh, to the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ and behaving as if he really believed that his ordained priesthood in the Catholic church uh, is an icon of the eternal priesthood of of Jesus Christ. So those are some thoughts that occur to me uh, on that ongoing uh, set of issues. We need the next pope and the next pope after that, and maybe the next pope after that is going to have to apply the lessons that have been learned with great suffering uh, over the past uh, two decades here in the United States and elsewhere to the reform of the priesthood throughout the world.
0: Here's one from a viewer George, what does the next pope need to understand about the church in America in the 21st century?
1: Well, that's that's a very good question. Uh, and it's not susceptible to an easy answer because the church in America is a very complicated business. It involves at least 65, maybe as many as 75 or 80 million people living in a very, diverse set of circumstances uh, throughout the country. That having been said, uh, when you compare the Catholic situation in Europe to the Catholic situation in the United States, um, however many difficulties we have here in the United States, and we all know a lot of them are, uh, we're in remarkably good shape. Uh, compared to what you see in in Western Europe uh, today. I I keep coming back to CIC, not simply because it's the host of this program, but but because I, I believe so much in what it's doing. There is nothing like the Catholic Information Center and its liturgical, intellectual, aesthetic, and spiritual programs in any other in any major European capital, this this, something like this simply doesn't exist. And that's, that says a lot about the church in the United States, that the church in America could uh, give birth to something as vibrant as as the Catholic Information Center uh, and its programs. I think the The patterns of campus ministry we're beginning to see develop around the church in the United States through groups like Focus, through really remarkable Catholic campus ministries like the one at Texas A&M University, uh, which I think is the gold standard for Catholic campus ministry in the United States. These are all things that uh, the rest of the world church needs to know about. I've mentioned our reforms of seminary recruitment and seminary formation I could also mention uh, the fact that there are many uh, vibrant growing young communities of women religious in, in the United States uh, this is something that the church and the rest of the developed world uh, needs uh, needs to look at uh, I think our parish life, for all of its problems, uh, remains a great strength of the church in the United States, that, from which others might learn. And then there is the whole uh, range, the wide range, of lay initiatives, uh, renewal communities, new forms of lay association and lay spiritual community in the church in the United States. This exists. All over the world, church, but it's it's particularly uh, it's particularly vibrant here. Finally, since we're in an election year, with all the usual controversies attendant on an election year, uh, I think the church in America has learned how to be a public church in a way that that others might emulate. The Catholic Church in most of Western Europe is simply not a vibrant voice in public life. Catholic Church in Poland, I regret to report since I love Poland dearly and have spent probably close, when you add it all up, close to three or four years of my life there. Catholic Church in Poland has not learned how to be a John Paul II public church Too much of it is still trying to be a partisan church uh, identified with a particular political party in which clergy are the dominant public actors. This is all not good. Uh, The Second Vatican Council is very clear that the primary responsibility for Christian witness in the public sphere in the public square rests with lay people. And the task of the ordained ministers of the church are to equip the laity uh, to do that. Uh, We've done that reasonably well uh, in the church in the United States, although we have some grave problems of catechetical formation uh, among certain self identified Catholic political leaders. Uh, But the voice of Catholicism in public life is more uh, audible in the church in the United States than it is just about any place else. And that's something we need to build on and
0: refine and develop. So speaking of the lady, you mention in your book, you refer to the lady as the new Israel. What can the next pope learn from these last three papacies um, and how they've engaged the laity and particularly younger generations?
1: I think the great, the great challenge uh, today um, is to help Catholics in situations where the church has long been a presence, uh, but may be declining in numbers to help Catholics understand the meaning and importance of their baptism. If you look at the extraordinarily vibrant Catholicism that is growing by leaps and bounds in in sub-Saharan Africa today, one of the great stories of evangelization uh, in 2000 years of Christian history. Catholics in sub-Saharan Africa, most of whom are first or second generation Catholics, understand how important the day of their baptism was. That was the day when they were incorporated into the body of Christ, but that was also the day where they received, if you will, the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28 and were commissioned to be missionary disciples. I think in these vibrant African churches, you have people who understand that they have a responsibility by baptism to offer others the great gift they have received, which is friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ and incorporation into his body, the church. That's a challenge for us here in the United States. I'm afraid too many of our people still think of of baptism as a kind of welcoming ceremony, certainly that, uh, but it's much more than that. Baptism makes you something different, it makes you someone different. So to own the meaning of one's baptism is the challenge for, for catechetics throughout the church in America today And I find young people are especially open to this notion. Young people who are interested in in the church uh, are interested in being missionary disciples. And that's a very important and hopeful fact of our Catholic life in America going forward. I, I think Pope Francis has been quite good at calling people to recognize the meaning of of what it means to be a baptized Catholic Christian. It means to be, as he's put it many times, a missionary disciple. Uh, That's a teaching, that's a challenge that has to be repeated time and time again uh, going
0: forward uh, in the church of the 21st century. So we, we are a church and mission, and you mentioned the Great uh, Commission in Matthew's gospel. You also mention in the book, um, uh, in talking about the Great Commission, that the tools of accompaniment and dialogue, which we hear a lot about in the church today, um, are tools for the Great Commission, but not necessarily ends in themselves. Um, can you uh, discuss that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, well, I've, no one objects to accompaniment and dialogue, but accompaniment... <laughs> Accompaniment and dialogue must lead somewhere or ought to attempt to lead somewhere. Um, G.K. Chesterton was great at, at coining wonderful lines. And, you know, Chesterton famously said, an open mind like an open mouth should close on something. An open mind like an open mouth should close on something. And I think that's applicable to these pastoral strategies of accompaniment and dialogue. We accompany accompany people in their faith journey. We are in conversation with them in that faith journey in the hope that we are leading them to Christ or deeper into the meaning of of their discipleship. And I think the same thing is true of uh, accompaniment and dialogue in the spheres of ecumenism and interreligious dialogue. I discuss this uh, in, in the book, the next quote, uh, suggesting that we need uh, perhaps a bit of a course correction here. Uh, ecumenism and interreligious dialogue cannot simply be a matter of, of, of good manners and the polite exchange of views. Uh, A genuine dialogue is a truth-centered dialogue in which fallible and weak human beings uh, come together in order to learn from each other, but to be led by the Holy Spirit into the truth. So uh, ecumenical dialogue and interreligious dialogue that are not truth-focused dialogues, Um, are problematic, uh, it seems to me. Now, in the great work of evangelization, uh, accompaniment and dialogue are important, but so is winsome preaching, winsome Christian witness. a winsome explanation of, of the truths of, of Catholic faith. Um, it's not simply walking with someone, it's walking with toward a destination. And uh, this is where true tolerance lies. Tolerance means engaging differences, discussing differences, within a bond of respect and civility, but it doesn't mean ignoring differences. Um, We believe or should believe that what is said by the community in the creed at mass on Sunday is not just truth for us. It's really the truth of the world. It's the truth of the meaning of the world. Um, and I think a bit more self-confident, a bit more confidence in that, not arrogance, but but confidence in, in the fact that we have been privileged to be witnesses to the truth uh, would energize the work of evangelization, especially with young people.
0: Here's another one, George. In the book, you describe the Pope as the Church's first witness um, and discuss a little bit about the relative merits and demerits of what you refer to as papal protagonism in the modern era. Can you speak a little bit more about those ideas and how they are at play together or um, in conflict?
1: Well, they're not in conflict, uh, Mitch, but there's a tension here. Um, It's, it was very good, for example, for the church uh, during the pontificate of John Paul II to have such a compelling personality, such a media savvy personality uh, in the chair of Peter. This put a face, if you will, on the Catholic church that that many people found quite compelling And, and a face that invited enormous numbers of people who many suspected were not interested in Christianity or Catholicism into a real encounter with Jesus Christ and, and the church at the same time. And I have to say, I was very aware of this during the pontificate of John Paul II uh, and in reflecting on that pontificate in, in writing the two volumes of his biography that you mentioned that this enormous figure uh, was somehow, not by his own intention, uh, was somehow giving a pass to other leaders in the church who, when confronted by dicey, delicate, or problematic situations, you know, would sometimes say, I don't have to deal with this here. They'll handle it in Rome. That's a real problem. Uh, That's a real problem. And the next Pope is going to have to make clear as his predecessors have tried to do, but I think the next Pope is gonna have to be even more explicit about it. that, That bishops are not simply branch managers of Catholic Church Inc. Bishops are genuine vicars of Christ in their own diocese. They have authority and responsibility to teach, sanctify and govern. And if they are not going to do that, if they're not going to be teachers, sanctifiers and governors, then they should lay down their office to make way for a man who who will do that. Uh, There's another problem with this relatively new phenomenon of the Pope being the central figure in in Catholic imagination and media imagination about the Catholic Church. As I indicate in in the book, The Next Pope, uh, this simply was not the case. 150 years ago. Uh, roll the clock back a little bit farther to the time of the American founding, the time of the appointment of the first bishop in the United States, John Carroll. I would There were 35,000, 40,000 mo- at most Catholics in the United States when, when John Carroll was, uh, became the bishop in the 1790s. My guess is that if you asked those thirty-five or 40,000 Catholics, who's the Pope, maybe 3% of them could name, oh, Pope Pius VI. The Pope simply did not occupy the place in the Catholic imagination that popes do today. That really began with Pope Pius IX in the mid-19th century. And it's good that Catholics have this uh, understanding that there is a spiritual father who has a responsibility uh, for, the, for the entire world church. Uh, that's fine. But the downside of that in, for example, media terms is that the Pope tends to suck all of the air out of the room. I mean, when was the last time you To go back to something we just talked about. When was the last time you saw a serious television story, radio report, or print or online news story about the phenomenal growth of the Catholic Church in in Sub-Saharan Africa? When was the last time you saw a story about the growth of new lay movements in the church, in, in, in in the wider secular media? Everything in the church seems to reduce to the papacy or to scandal in, in, in media terms, um, and that that I think that's pro, I think that's problematic. There is much much more going on in the church uh, throughout the world than what is going on in the Vatican. Uh, I also think uh, this papal protagonism, as some people call it, for this intense focus on the papacy is disorienting for Catholics. Um, Many Catholics know more about, or think they know more about what's going on in Rome than they know about what's going on in their own diocese or maybe even their own parish. And, you know, this is not good. We should be aware of what's growing and, and what needs to be encouraged around us, uh, for which we do not need the permission uh, of the Vatican or, or, or the Pope. So it's a, it's a mixed blessing, this, uh, the hugeness of the papacy in the imagination of the church and the world. Um, and it does have some positive uh, elements. Uh, but it also has some downsides, and I try to discuss those in the book.
0: So speaking of the imagination of the media, Catholic and otherwise, how does your current book address the controversy swirling about online about the Second Vatican Council, if at all?
1: Well, I have to say, and I hope this doesn't sound uh, too uh, uh, professorial, I find that a lot of this controversy is deeply ill-informed. People are talking about Vatican II without any idea of what led up to it, why it was necessary, what John XXIII intended for it, what the Council actually taught. This this is not a helpful discussion. Uh, I'm all for discussing the Second Vatican Council, but I think that discussion advances the cause of Christ and the mission of the Church when it's well informed historically, and many times uh, it isn't. It's especially not helpful when conspiracy theories of various sorts. Uh, take over the discussion. Uh, why did the Second Vatican Council happen? The Second Vatican Council happened because of our friend Leo XIII. Leo the XIII set in motion a series of initiatives in Catholic intellectual life, Catholic pastoral practice, Catholic engagement with modern social, political, and economic life that rippled through the world church for decades, causing not a little turbulence. Then the 20th century happened. Anyone who imagines that the church could approach its task in the world As if the First World War had not happened, as if the Second World War had not happened, as if the Cold War were not happening in the mid 20th century. As if the Scientific Revolution had not happened, as if the Democratic Revolution had not happened. Anyone who imagines that you can freeze frame Catholicism uh, at the time of, let's say, Gregory the 16th in the early 19th century is simply living in a fantasy land. This, this, you, you, the church cannot ignore the flow of history. The church must respond to that in order to be the evangelical engine that the Lord commissioned it to be. So in 1958, John the 23rd, a very competent historian and a man who had Experienced a lot of that mid early and mid 20th century Catholic turbulence in his own life and that mid 20th century historical turbulence in his own life, decided to gather up the energies that Leo XIII had set in motion in the church, focus them through the prism of an ecumenical council so that the church could have a new experience of Pentecost and come out of that experience recommitted to its fundamental mission, which is the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the unique savior of the world and the sanctification of the world through that that proclamation. That's what the Second Vatican Council was intended to do. And that is what its documents, its texts teach us if we read them properly which is not as if the Second Vatican Council reinvented the Catholic Church, which it did not, if those documents are read in the context of the Church's settled tradition, of what John XXIII called in his opening address to Vatican II, the sacred deposit of faith, then we find a blueprint for a Church permanently in mission in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Here's another piece of history that is unknown and helpful. Every ecumenical council in the 2000 year history of the church was called because of controversy, was conducted in controversy, and was followed by controversy. That's why it's a real blessing that there have only been 21 of these exercises in 2000 years. They really tend to stir things up. They're called because things are already stirred up and and the pot remains boiling for, for some time afterwards. So there is nothing new about the fact that we are still grappling with the teaching of the Second Vatican Council uh, almost 60 years after its opening. The other important thing to recognize is that Vatican II has been given its authoritative interpretation by John Paul II and Benedict XVI, both of whom were key actors at the Second Vatican Council, both of whom insisted that the Council was a gift of the Holy Spirit to the church, and both of whom insisted that the Council has to be interpreted in light of the settled tradition of the church. So for people to say today that Vatican II was a terrible mistake, never should have happened, let's just quietly forget about it, is really to say that two of the great popes of the past 500 years. John Paul II and Benedict XVI got it terribly wrong. And they didn't.
0: So, those are some thoughts on that. Two viewer questions here I'll, I'll kind of pull together. The first many dioceses in the US have been forced to close parishes. How do we reverse this trend? And what is your biggest concern for the church today? Well, the the last one is the
1: easier one. I mean, my biggest concern is the biggest concern of any serious Catholic uh, over the past 2,000 years. And that concern was defined by the Lord himself when he says in the Gospels, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? That's always the primary concern. Uh, and the answer, the response to that concern has to be the commitment to live as a missionary disciple and to measure the quality of our own discipleship by how well we bring others to meet the Lord or to return to the church that they've, they've left. Uh, I have, I know a lot of bishops. Um, I am now at a stage in my life where some of my former students are becoming bishops. Uh, To the bishops I've known and the new bishops who are being ordained, whom I have close personal friendships with, I, I say the same thing. When you come to a diocese, I would suggest that the first thing you say to your priests and your religious and your people, is that we are suspending all discussion of closing anything for six months and perhaps a year. So I get to know you and you get to know me, and we together discern how we are going to go on offense we're no longer going to be playing defense. We're not in institutional maintenance mode anymore. We are in new evangelization. mode. Now, because of changing demographic patterns among the Catholic population in the United States, that is inevitably going to mean, in some circumstances, uh, the closing of, of some parishes for the sake, I hope, of opening others. But you know, the Catholic Church throughout the United States is building churches and happily building some more aesthetically pleasing churches these days that I I think a lot of people are aware of. There are dioceses throughout the South, throughout the Southwest uh, that are building new parishes, erecting new parishes uh, at a great rate. Catholic Church in the Old South, the the most un-Catholic part of the country for many, many decades, indeed for centuries, is growing. Uh, A friend of mine who was a Bishop of a Southern Diocese uh, came to that diocese uh, from an established East Coast Diocese told me me towards the end of his life, I I did not expect, expect to come to the South and spend most of my time as a bishop building churches. And I said, well, that's a good thing. I mean, uh, if you were surprised, I hope you were happily surprised. I think the places where the church in the United States really uh, has to think carefully about how to go on offense in the midst of a great patrimony of of parishes, buildings, churches, schools, hospitals, et cetera, is the Northeast and the Midwest. Um, but the answer to closing parishes as a general phenomenon is, is evangelization. This is something that I think we're slowly beginning to reckon with, but it's crucial for the next Pope it's crucial for the next bishop, it's crucial for the next pastor, and it's crucial for every Catholic in the United States. Catholicism transmitted by osmosis, by family heritage, by ethnic heritage, is over. 20 years from now, maybe even 10 years from now, no adult Catholic in the United States is going to be able to answer the question why are you a Catholic? By saying, well, I'm a Catholic because my great grandmother was born in County Cork or in the south of Poland or in Bavaria uh, or in Guadalajara or wherever. Ethnic Catholicism, Catholicism as ethnic transmission is over. I mean, the culture simply doesn't permit that. The Catholicism of the future is intentional which means that the gospel has to be proposed, which means that catechesis of young people has to be taken very seriously. We're not gonna do it simply by breathing the air anymore. It's just not gonna happen. And I think the churches, the local churches in the Northeast and the Midwest have been somewhat slow to catch on to that. Uh, and part of that slowness might Involved the in fact that if you look around, there's all this tremendous Catholic infrastructure. I mean, this looks like it's going to go on forever. Well, it's not going to go on forever under these, inst- uh, under these cultural circumstances unless the, the whole church embraces evangelism as its primary mission.
0: Speaking of uh, church architecture, and you spoke a little bit about the bishops. Um, as you say in the book, naming bishops is one of only two things a pope must do, receiving ambassadors uh, from nation states being the other one. How should the next pope approach the process of naming new bishops? Well,
1: I, I have written about this uh, so much over the past uh, 20 years that I'm, I'm, I'm almost exhausted by, by the topic. Um, but let, let me repeat some of the some of the key points, and I, I do get into these in in the next book um, The first thing we should want to know about a man being considered to the office of bishop, assuming his orthodoxy and his commitment to the fullness of Catholic truth, assuming that the first thing we want to know about someone is: Can he make that Catholic faith compelling? Has he been an effective evangelist? Has the parishes he's led have the parishes he's led grown? Have the seminarians, if he's a seminary rector, uh, flourished? Are they good priests? We want the first thing we want to know about the man beyond his. Orthodoxy is, is his evangelical capacity. And I might put a footnote to that and that and say that includes his capacity to deal with media. Uh, a bishop who cannot explain the truth of Catholic faith on television, uh, on radio, in in the variety of forms of of new media that are available is not going to be the kind of bishop the church needs. How do we find those people? The second point I make in in the next poem is that the process needs to be expanded and that means consulting qualified, discreet lay people lay people see things in a priest that other priests may not see. That, for example, this man may be a a wonderful pastor, a deeply spiritual man, uh, a great sanctifier, but he can't run anything. And while I do believe that Bishop's primary responsibilities are evangelization and sanctification. He is a governor, and and a priest who's an inept manager uh, is likely going to be problematic as a bishop. Lay people might see that a man, for all of his other good qualities, really doesn't handle conflict very well. Uh, is uncomfortable dealing with opposing points of view. Uh, Somebody carrying those burdens is going to have a very tough time uh, being an effective bishop. So I think uh, a broader consultation on a man's qualifications for the episcopate uh, must include uh, lay people. The basic issue here is to uh, change the template so that appointments to the Episcopacy do not rely only on existing bishops. Uh, The Episcopate is not a club. Uh, It ought to be a a brotherhood, uh, but it's not a club. And uh, finding good bishops is not a matter of asking the existing club members who they want Next, in the club, it's a matter of measuring evangelical capacity, uh, sanctification capacity, and at least a minimum of governing capacity. Now, that governing capacity also must include the capacity to delegate. Uh, I know a lot of fine pastors. Whom I would be hesitant to recommend for the office of bishops because they are too much micromanagers. Uh, a bishop cannot be a micromanager. Uh, I think one of the greatest bishops of my lifetime, Archbishop now retired, Charles Chapu uh, of Philadelphia was a great Bishop for many reasons. He a man of profound faith. Uh, He's a man of of palpable holiness. Um, But he's also a manager who knows how to cooperate and collaborate with other people. Um, That model of collaborative leadership, which it's understood that the, the bottom line is the Bishop, but the bishop doesn't have to do everything. That model of collaborative leadership that Archbishop Chaput uh, exemplified in, in South Dakota, in Colorado, and, and later in Philadelphia, that's the model for the future. And so you want to know that about a man. You know, does he work well with other people? Can he delegate? Uh, does he have the courage to make tough decisions knowing that he is the bottom? But can he? Does he delegate? I mean, I think these are all things that the church could well find out uh, from qualified lay people, as well as from priests, as well as from other bishops.
0: That's all the time we have today. The book is The Next Pope. You can see it there, The Office of Peter and a Church in Mission. Thanks again, George, for your time today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in and for your questions we have several great events coming up soon, including a conversation with Archbishop Broglio of the Archdiocese of Military Services next week. So please do keep an eye on your website and in your inboxes and subscribe to our YouTube page to get notified the next time we go live. Thanks again to all of you again, and thanks to George. And we'll see Thank you. Next.